Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, September 5th, 2021. And now, Pastor John Gentry. Uh, Would you uh, join me in a quick prayer? Gracious God, we thank you that you you walked that road with us. We thank you that you feed us. Lord, as we just heard the scripture reading, we pray that you would feed that that word would feed us, feed our souls. And uh, may we, as our hearts swell with love, may we in turn be people of action who respond and live that word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, earlier this week, um, Pastor Jim uh, brought in a family-sized helping of beef stroganoff to feed the staff uh, here in the office. Uh, It's carb-heavy, it's creamy, it's very filling, and it carries you throughout the day. Uh, If you've ever had it, you know it'll it'll keep you going for a while. Uh, Well, uh, the week before, our office manager, Inga, who many of you know, uh, brought in a homemade meatballs, uh, sauerkraut, and mashed potatoes. Uh, and just like the stroganoff, it was very rich and filling, and of course, delicious. Um, if you asked either Pastor Jim or Inga, I'm sure they'd tell you uh, that there's something about feeding people that is more uh, than just simply feeding, uh, filling a belly. I mean, it is that, of course, uh, but it is much more. Uh, feeding people... Uh, builds connections, doesn't it? It opens a door for conversation as you sit around a table or uh, as you stand together and eat. It sends a message of of hospitality and goodwill as you feed those people. And if you're sitting down together uh, sharing that meal, it places you at the same table, uh, sharing the same food. Hopefully, uh, with the same interest in in learning about each other and, and learning from each other, Food has a way of uniting people. Um, You know, when it comes to our Christian community, we know that it takes more than a hearty plate of noodles or cabbage to unite people uh, and unite the church in mission and its worship. I mean, cabbage doesn't doesn't hurt, but it takes a little bit more than that. And it, it, it matters who we include. And it also matters how we include them. As we take a closer look at James 2 today, we will discover that the church is called to be united and unified with the practice of radical inclusion. The book of James teaches that real love is bold and courageous in making room for people, especially those people who tend to be overlooked. Uh, so they have a, making a, a place for them and making them feel valued among us. Going back to the the mealtime imagery, we pay attention to the way that we set the table for people uh, to join us in the breaking of bread. Uh, Our scripture reading begins with a a strong caution against favoritism. Uh, James 2.1 reads like this, My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? One of the things the Bible does best is putting a spotlight on areas of our life that are contradictory. And it's not necessarily a comfortable experience. We don't necessarily like it, but we need it. And in this writing, we uh, we get confronted with the uncomfortable problem of hypocrisy in the church 
when we show favoritism to some groups and contempt for others. We know, of course, that should not be happening, right? Well, this happens uh, sometimes today, and, and apparently it happened even when the church first began to form. Uh, James, uh, who's the writer of this letter, was the half-brother of Jesus. He's one of the most respected leaders of the Christian community in the Jerusalem area, uh, that city and the surrounding region of Judea. The New Testament refers uh, to a famine that had swept across that region and made life hard for people uh, around this time, especially people who were already living in poverty or at the edge of it. Um, at that time, the early community of believers were also facing a little opposition from uh, certain religious and political powers that be. And all this while still trying to figure out what it meant to be a Jesus community, now that Jesus was ascended. So the dilemma that gets highlighted here in this second chapter of the book is, uh, is that it is the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable who gets handed the worst deal when a community gets squeezed, uh, oftentimes because of neglect and discrimination. A uh, social psychologist and professor at the University of Washington uh, named Anthony Galt Greenwald uh, has pointed out in his research that discrimination takes many forms, uh, including some of uh, much less aggressive than you might expect. Uh, now, there is the explicit uh, undisguised kind of uh, discrimination, things like a white person spouting anti-black rhetoric or a homophobe yelling slurs at a gay couple, a couple of the examples he gives. Uh, those ones are kind of hard to miss. Uh, but then there are the less obvious forms. He says, we can produce discrimination without any intent to discriminate uh, or any dislike for those who end up being disadvantaged by our behaviors. You can treat people differently without being hostile to anyone. Which is interesting, right? Uh, this happens, for example, when promotions at work ended up being handed to people who just simply fit the status quo, uh, or when unqualified people are allowed to stay in powerful roles in society simply because of who they know. This type of discrimination doesn't emerge from outward hostility, but instead from attitudes and displays of favoritism which James is warning us about, to refrain from, to keep ourselves distant from that type of attitude. And, and sometimes it even happens without any laws being broken. James gives a very concrete example of favoritism for his audience. Uh, verses 2 through 4 paint a, a picture of a group of people who have gathered together, probably for worship, and have segregated themselves into the haves and haves not according to seating arrangement. Uh, verse two, verses 2 through 4 read like this. For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, have a seat here, please, uh, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here we have a scene where both blatant acts of prejudice and subtle undertones of favoritism are on full display. The people of means are ushered in with warm greetings and guided to the best seats in the house. Uh, you know, the figurative red carpets rolled out as their hands are shaken and compliments are made on their nice fancy clothes. 
Uh, you've probably been in a situation like this, I bet. Um, for me, it was a restaurant that I worked at uh, during my seminary studies. Uh, we took good care of our guests, but when the owner of the restaurant showed up, all the stops were pulled out. Uh, you know, sometimes he showed up uh, as expected, you know, announced. Other times he became unannounced. Either way, uh, you learned as a server or a bartender or a greeter or anyone else uh, to make your smile just a little bit bigger, uh, to pep in your step a little peppier. Uh, and, and we'd find the best table for him and his wife. Uh, we'd make sure that service was immediate, immaculate, uh, impressive. Uh, everyone, even the staff uh, who were out of sight, uh, were on their absolute best behavior. Uh, maybe it because no one wanted to get fired that day, uh, but some saw it as a chance uh, to get in his good graces and maybe end up down the road with better shifts or uh, step up the corporate ladder. Uh, I can't say that we always treated every guest with quite the same level of trumpet blowing and carpet unrolling that we did when that owner walked in. The argument that James, too, seems to be making is that there is a very big difference between favoritism that James has just depicted uh, and the love that James knows the church is supposed to be practicing. Tim Mackey tells us, we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us uh, and neglect people who can't. Usually because they're needy, this, this is the opposite of love. Um, this kind of attitude, unfortunately, is deeply embedded in human society and is very hard to shake. It's something that we learn at an early age. I mean, even kids know that. Uh, they know when to, to up their cuteness level uh, when someone's around them that, they, that has something that they'd like. Uh, in my eight years of working in the hospitality industry, I quickly discovered uh, that there's a game to play. You know, certain restaurant patrons are happy to leave a hefty tip or a glowing review of your service if you go the extra mile for them. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, but it's, it's, it's an attitude of, you know, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch, sorry, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Um, you know, maybe uh, I might notice that, it, uh, I might ask the manager, uh, hey, can I take that appetizer that accidentally got made in the kitchen and I kind of drop it at my table on the house? Um, or or um, maybe I can convince the kitchen staff to make a few modifications to orders that we don't do normally do, which of course uh, they were extremely thrilled about, right? but I was trying to angle myself to, to really improve that guest experience. Uh, and whatever it is, you know, there's usually some type of opportunity for give and take. And that is the game that we play. But this type of interaction, um, it's easy to spot wherever we go, wherever workplace we live in. But, but James tells us this, this should not be the model for the church. Uh, the church supposed to be a different kind of society. It needs to look a little different than what we see in the marketplace or the courts, the governmental offices, or any other place. Scholars tell us that many societies have uh, been developed around a system that exchanged honor and privilege for patronage and material support. This was certainly the case for the society that the first Christians uh, inhabited. Theme Perkins writes this about James first century world, though self-sufficiency was frequently presented as an ideal, most, people live, mo, sorry, most people's lives 
were enveloped in a complex web of obligations to benefactors. Uh, and, you know, in that situation, in that society, who are the people uh, who tend to lose big time in that system? Well, it's the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable. Uh, sadly, this is exactly what happens in the scenario that James depicts in verses 2 through 4. The people of no means don't get the VIP treatment. They're, you know, quite the opposite. No one even pretends to make them feel very welcome. Someone points to the back and uh, mutters something about standing room back there. Or another person motions at a space on the floor and, and tells them to sit because there aren't enough chairs, even though clearly there are a handful of empty chairs there. You know, maybe, perhaps James is exaggerating to make a little point. Uh, or, or perhaps maybe he saw this happen with his own eyes. Either way, uh, it could not be further from the spirit of Christian hospitality and inclusion. You can hear the disbelief in James's voice when he speaks, or when he asks the question in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? He wants to know that if, if, if they've forgotten who they have placed their faith in as Christians, because if it's in Jesus, well, they seem to have conveniently forgotten that Jesus was not wealthy, that Jesus spent lots of time among the poor and disenfranchised, and that Jesus advocated for their well-being in his teachings and through his ministry and his relationships. By preferring the wealthy and the powerful over the poor, they are taking up different standards than they've received as followers of Jesus Christ. James echoes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, particularly the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, when he asked them in verse 5 right here in James, Has not God chosen the poor to, in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Many biblical scholars take a moment here to acknowledge uh, that there are lessons to be learned about not merely uh, the economically poor, but all those who find themselves in a disadvantaged and even oppressed position. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson writes this, Such instances, like the one James describes, and it is easy to multiply the ways in which people can, become, uh, can because of appearance, size, gender, sexual orientation, and status, seem to be poor by the world standards, challenges the church's recollection that it is supposed to be a kingdom made up of just such inconvenient and unacceptable persons, or at least as the world sees them. When the poor cannot find a place in Christian church, that church no longer has any connection to Jesus. Now, I know those are some hard-hitting, gut-punching words, uh, but they are important for us to hear because they speak to our identity as a people of faith. Will we continue Jesus' work of creating a safe, nurturing, uh, and radically inclusive space for all? Will we reject the hurtful, judgmental labels that the world has placed on the poor and the marginalized? Will we sit and listen with these people who have a story to tell? Uh, Christopher Church writes uh, about uh, God's solidarity with the poor. Uh, though nobody's from the world's advantage, these poor who love God are nevertheless somebodies from the perspective of faith. They are rich heirs of God's promises. 
that worshiping assemblies stand to gain from these poor who know about faith proven in hard struggle, who demonstrate to love, uh, love for God by caring for their own, and who hope that God will intervene on their behalf. Uh, James will go on in chapter 2 to say that, that in feeding and clothing those who need it, we are living out our faith demonstrably. Uh, you know, where, whether we are uh, reaching out with a nurturing hand and an open heart, whenever we are doing that, we are becoming the kind of Christian community that we were meant to be. Amen? Uh, some of you may remember uh, the sermon series uh, and the Food for Thought study from last fall based on Melissa D. Arabian's book, Tasting Grace. Uh, she writes this, We cook for the people in our communities out of a deep love and an innate desire to nurture one another. All relationships require selflessness and nurture, and even a simple pan of shared lasagna can communicate that kind of love. Feeding people and friends is one way to celebrate the nurturer that God uh, wove into all of us. This is why Jesus said that uh, he did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus' way isn't schmoozing or negotiating or manipulating one's way to the top. Uh, it's certainly not about stepping over or stepping on people on your way to the top. Instead, as we know as a church, and as we continue to live this way, it's about looking after one another, especially um, for those who most need it. It's about creating a community that's transformed by love and compassion, where we all stand on equal footing because of our equal dependence on God's grace, as we just celebrated through communion. Notice how James refers to his audience. Uh, verse 1 brings us back full circle, my brothers and sisters. That's how James addresses his audience. James reminds us that those who follow Jesus are supposed to regard each other as family, as siblings, as brothers and sisters. And we are meant to carry that same level of brotherly and sisterly affection and concern in all our relationships, church-related or not. Theme Perkins writes in her commentary, early Christians went beyond the language of benefaction and friendship to speak of one another as brothers and sisters. The family was the only sphere in which benefits did not come with a corresponding obligation. Two important consequences follow from this shift. First, everyone is obligated to aid one another when he or she has the means to do so. Benefaction is not a discretion of the donor. Second, benefits do not create corresponding obligations. If they did, the honor and privilege suggested by the seating arrangements in the Christian synagogue would be entirely appropriate. Instead, Christians are to treat one another as siblings. Their charity has no strings attached. Uh, the beauty of God's family, as James envisions it, is that we love, not because we're told to, right, or not because we're co coerced to, but because we are family. Uh, that uh, is just what family does. I've seen a number of you uh, quietly and uh, faithfully uh, dropping off donations for the food pantry, even uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, when we weren't even meeting on church property. Uh, no one asked for a trophy as they were dropping off these canned goods. Uh, no one asked to be recognized. Uh, you just did it because uh, God made us nurturers, because charity has no strings attached. 
In a single issue uh, magazine at the New York Times last year, there was an article called How Cooking Dinner Makes a Difference. Uh, and it had an intro line, ritual meals can improve life for everyone seated at the table. In this article, Sam Sifton, uh, who is the New York Times food editor, uh, recounts cooking dinners at his local church in Brooklyn. And, and he did this for years. He would he'd cook these dinners that, that followed the Sunday evening prayers, and the dinners would range in size. They'd be small, they'd be large, but they would bring in all kinds of people. Uh, some faces he knew very well, because they'd be there every week. Uh, others were total strangers wandering in for the first time. Um, some people, some came as families uh, looking for a, a meal that they didn't have to cook that night. Uh, some came alone. Some loved to socialize and would talk across the table and talk about their day. Others wanted just to simply eat their meal in peace. Uh, some lived just around the block, uh, and others were in town as visitors or guests or tourists. I mean, he would, he'd make great big pots of beef stroganoff and chili and other things for people to enjoy. He writes this, My children enjoyed these dinners, uh, though I, I know that they were loath to admit it. They disliked all that preceded them, as children do, uh, referring to like the prayers and such. Church ought not to, church ought just to be dinner, my oldest said once at dinner. I smiled in response, and if I had been a better parent, I might have said that this is already the case, at least in a church built around uh, the sacrament of Eucharist, the consecration and the consumption of bread and wine. But the kids were off to clear the tables by then and asking for ice cream. Well, as you know already, today is Communion Sunday. And on this first Sunday of the month, we share a very important meal together that is designed for that very purpose, to unite people uh, in the mystery of God's grace at the table that Jesus has set for us uh, with the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Melissa D. Arabian says that whoever has the task of setting the table gets the gift of slowing down and learning the joy of serving others. I don't think many of us really think of setting the table as something, as a privilege or as something that's necessarily enjoyable. Usually it's just something you do because you've got to do it. Uh, but she says, wait, no, a minute. That's a time to slow down. That's a time to take in the joy of serving others. Uh, when United Methodists set our table for the sacrament of communion, we set it with an open table, which means that all are welcome and encouraged to join in on God's uh, grace, regardless of age or gender or orientation or ethnicity or status or any other distinction that sometimes have been used as barriers for God's grace. Communion isn't about the haves or the haves-nots, right? It's not about the holy or the heathens. Uh, and when we take a bit of bread and, and a splash of juice, we consume them in the faith that life cannot and it will not be the same. That in accepting God's radical inclusion in the kingdom, we also must order our lives likewise. Uh, of course, you know, it, it really isn't we who set the table, but Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one... Sorry, Jesus is the one who invites us uh, to a table that is big enough to include everyone, that is abundant enough to feed the belly and the soul, and that is long enough to keep us 
passing those plates around the table. My prayer for us today, uh, as we uh, wind up the service and as we prepare ourselves to go out, is that we will come to this table as siblings and as nurturers, people inspired by Jesus to love. Uh, if this is your prayer today, say amen. Amen.